0: Yeah, good morning Life Church. You can have a seat. It's good to see you this morning. I'm glad that you're with us. I hope you have a Bible with you. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 this morning, and so whether you have an old-fashioned paper Bible like I do, or you're going to use one on your phone, um, or you're just going to grab the black hardback one that we've left lying around on the seat near you, I would love you to find, love it if you would find the Old Testament book of Ruth. We're going to be in the third chapter together this morning. If we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the elders here at Life Church. I'm on the staff as well. And I'm just pumped that we can be in the Word of God together as we just continue to journey through this book of Ruth together. Um, as you read the Bible, one of the remarkable themes that just you see again and again and again is the theme of God's covenant faithfulness. Right, One of the things that just comes out of almost every page, you see it at every turn, around every corner, just the Bible is clear and eager to make us see, to help us see the fact that God is a God of covenant faithfulness. Now, what does that mean? Two words, covenant. God desires to be in relationship with his people, and that relationship is based on his promises of goodness and grace to us. Faithfulness. He intends to keep his promises, right? He doesn't waver from those promises. He doesn't depart from those promises. And so, even though, again, you see this in Scripture too, even though we as people are remarkably rebellious, and again and again and again we stray from our relationship with the Lord, God comes again and again and again back to us in that relationship, Though we rebel against him, he welcomes us in again time and time and time again because he is a God of remarkable covenant faithfulness. He does not depart from his promises to us. He does not waver in those promises to us. He is relentlessly and gloriously committed to his people because he is a God of covenant faithfulness. And, and that's just on every page of the Bible, frankly. Sometimes when the Bible tells us about that, it tells us about that in blatant and striking ways. And I was just thinking about the most blatant and striking way that I can think of that Scripture communicates this idea to us. That's through the book of Hosea. Now, maybe you haven't spent time in Hosea lately. You haven't done your devotions in that book in a while. Hosea was one of those Old Testament prophets who God sent to his people to urge them towards repentance. But he said, I don't want you just to tell my people that I'm committed to them. I want you to show my people that I'm committed to them. And so God intended for Hosea to show his radical and relentless commitment to his people by being in a relationship with a wife who was a prostitute. That's what God called Hosea to. This is actually how Hosea 1 verse 2 puts it. The Bible says, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, when he called Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now I want you to know, like 20 years ago, had you told me that there would be a day when I stood up in front of a whole bunch of people and repeatedly said the word whoredom, I would have thought that you were insane, but here, I've done it a handful of times right at the beginning of the message this morning. But you hear what Hosea is called to, right? Hosea is called to marry a woman, her name is Gomer, who is a prostitute. She is a wife of whoredom, And Hosea is called to have children in that relationship with his wife. And he's called to that because God wants Hosea's persistent embrace of his wife To be a living picture to his people of his own covenant faithfulness. And so of course Gomer strays from her relationship with Hosea. She is, after all, a prostitute. She's called a spouse of Hortim for a reason. And so she keeps wandering away from her commitment to Hosea. And Hosea keeps welcoming her back in. And all of that, God intends to be a living picture of his commitment to his people. It's beautiful. There's even a point in the book where where Hosea she or I'm sorry, Gomer, she winds up in this kind of like. Sex, slavery, almost. And Hosea, he sells everything that he owns so that he can buy his prostitute wife out of slavery and bring her back into relationship with him. And God just says, that is how I treat my people. That is how I welcome my people back because I am so steadfastly committed to them. It's his covenant faithfulness. And in a book like Hosea, it is striking and blatant and you cannot miss it. In a book like Ruth, which we've been studying now for a few weeks, it is decidedly beneath the surface, but the book of Ruth is ultimately a testimony to the continued covenant faithfulness of God, and actually in Ruth, that works on two levels. We're seeing, as we continue to walk through this story, that God is faithful to the people in the story, right? He's, he's faithful to the characters in this story. We've spent a lot of time talking about those characters and we continue to see that God, he is working in their lives. Even though they are walking through difficult moments, God is still present, he is still real, he is still there, and he still cares for these people. So he hasn't forgotten them, he hasn't forsaken them. He remains faithful to his covenant to them. And so that's true even in just the, the things like people having food and shelter, In relationship, we see that that's true in the book of Ruth. But then we also recognize that there's a much deeper foundational way in which Ruth testifies to the covenant faithfulness of God. See, the book of Ruth, it's ultimately not about Ruth or the relationship that she's in with a man named Boaz or with her mother-in-law, Naomi. The book of Ruth is ultimately about the list of names that comes at the end. The genealogy of King David, See, the book of Ruth is about what God did to work in history to lead us to the family of King David. And that's significant because King David is a part of the family of King Jesus. And so we can see that in all of these events in this book, this is actually an expression of God's covenant faithfulness, not just to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, but truly his covenant faithfulness to us. Because this is what God has done to maintain relationship with us, to maintain his promised relationship with us. Because God is at work in these events to provide for us a redeemer, a savior, his son Jesus. We're going to get to see that even more fully as we walk through chapter three this morning. I think Ruth chapter three is certainly the most complex and curious part of this very short, very beautiful story. Um, But we will see this morning that it is, no doubt, a continued testimony to the covenant faithfulness of our Lord. So let me pray for us, and then we'll begin to walk through it together. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are a faithful God. Uh, We confess and acknowledge that we are not faithful in return. And we marvel at the fact that despite our rebellion and wandering and faithlessness... You continue to bind yourself to us. You continue to show us kindness and favor. Among those kindnesses that you show us, Lord, you have given us your word that we might know you and understand who you are. And in light of that, we pray today that you would give us hearts that are soft and open not only to understand but to believe and then apply the truths that we find in this passage today. We need your help, God, in order to rightly understand and apply this. And so we pray that your spirit would come and work in us as we hear from your word now. We pray all of that in the beautiful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Ruth chapter three. Let's look for evidence of God's covenant faithfulness as we read this story. Verse one. Then Naomi said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, excuse me, so Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? Now, of course, I need to recap a few key pieces of the story if we're gonna make any sense of that. Um, Let's just talk about three people. First, let's talk about Naomi. Naomi was the wife of Elimelech, Elimelech was a man who, when famine came to the little town of Bethlehem, took his family to a place called Moab. He got to Moab and died. His two sons, Malan and Kilian, married two Moabite women, and then they died, leaving Naomi, Elimelech's widow, with two Moabite daughters-in-law who she really didn't want. And so Naomi, she went back to Bethlehem. One of the daughters-in-law, Orpah, she stayed in Moab, but the other clung to her, and Ruth went with her to Bethlehem. However, they're in a sort of precarious situation because if you're a widow and an orphan in this ancient society, that meant that you were basically guaranteed to be in poverty and practically guaranteed to be in significant physical danger as well. You couldn't own land, you couldn't own property, and so you had to beg for food, essentially, and you had no husband to protect you, no sons to protect you. And so Naomi and Ruth, they're they're sort of desperate as they wind up in Bethlehem. That is, they're desperate until chapter 2 happens, when a man, Boaz, appears on the scene. And now typically in this ancient society, if you were a widow, the brother of your dead husband would feel some sense of obligation to marry you, to save you from this poverty, and to provide for you and to protect you. Um, But to this point, nobody has believed that Elimelech had any relatives who could do that. However, Boaz shows up, and he is one of those relatives. And not only that, he's gracious, he's kind, he's generous to Ruth, Into Naomi. And so these two characters begin to realize that things maybe aren't as desperate or hopeless as they thought they were. And that's where Naomi's coming from when she says to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? And then she devises a plan. A plan for Ruth to pursue rest. With Boaz. Now, there are two things that I want us to think about as we consider Naomi's plan. The first is the remarkable fact that Naomi has a plan to begin with. And then the second is the plan itself. So let's do it in that order. Why do I think it's remarkable that Naomi has a plan to begin with? Well, I think it's remarkable because hopeless, bitter people, they're not optimists. They don't come up with schemes like Naomi comes up with here. When we met Naomi at the end of chapter one, if you remember, she came back to Bethlehem, very bitter, very angry, very frustrated. All of the women in Bethlehem are like Naomi, "You're here, great." And she's like, "Don't call me Naomi, right? Because Naomi means pleasant." She said instead, "Call me Mara, which means bitter, because frankly, she was bitter." And then she said, "The Lord has taken me or went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Like she's just angry. She's hopeless." But now, as we meet her in chapter three, she has hope. Something has changed in her mind, in her heart, and that's leading her to make these plans, to make these schemes. What is it that has changed for her? Well, I think, if we really consider it, what's changed for her is that she has been reminded of the covenant faithfulness of God. She's been reminded of the fact that God cares for her and for Ruth. And that reminder has stirred again in her heart faith that God will care for her in the future. Why why do I think that? Well, just look with me, if you will. If you're in your Bible, you can skim back up just a couple of verses to Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. There, Ruth has come back to Naomi. She's reported that she met Boaz in the field and that Boaz was very generous to her. And just listen to what Naomi says. She says, May he, she's talking about Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, whose kindness, the Lord's kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So at the end of chapter one, Naomi, she's bitter. She's angry. She's like, I've got nothing. I am empty. At the end of chapter two, Naomi says, praise God. Because his kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. In other words, his kindness has not forsaken me. God has been faithful to me, Naomi says, because she remembers again the kindness and grace and covenant faithfulness of God to her through Boaz. Now before we move off of this, I, just, I do want to point out the fact that there is a principle here, and I think it's a principle that is vital for our walks with the Lord. It's vital for the Christian life. It's vital for any kind of flourishing, active sense of hope in our lives, a hope that can endure good circumstances and bad circumstances, a hope that can stand up to whatever life brings us. The principle is this. Remembrance and reflection upon God's past faithfulness will always build and sustain hope and God's future faithfulness. When we look back on what God has done, when we remember it, and when we reflect on what God has done in the past, that will always cultivate in us, grow in us, and sustain through us a hope in what God will continue to do in the future. That's what Naomi has experienced here. She's been reminded of the Lord's kindness. And having been reminded of the Lord's kindness, she has hope that he will continue to be kind. And so she hatches or devises this plan for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And friends, the same power is available to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning. If you gather with us in this place as a disciple of Jesus this morning, then you have great faithfulness to look back on in the past. You can look at the faithfulness of God in key and specific ways in your life, most especially in the cross of Jesus Christ. And considering the faithfulness of God in the past, you can have hope that God will sustain you and provide for you in the future, no matter what you're facing in life. I think the most beautiful place that we see that in scripture is in the glorious logic of Romans chapter 8 verse 32 where the Apostle Paul, he, he says this. And I just want you, to, I want you to think about this and linger on this for a moment today as we think about the beauty of the logic that is here because it is beautiful logic. This might be the single greatest promise ever made to us in Scripture. This is what Paul says. He says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So think about what God did not do and what God did do. God did not spare his own son. He did not spare Jesus dying on the cross. He did not spare the blameless lamb of God who was crucified on the cross for rebels like us. He did not spare his one and only son the full penalty of our sins that was demanded by his holiness and righteousness. He did not spare Jesus the humiliation and the agony and the scorn and the pain of the cross. He did not spare Jesus the relational separation that the son endured From the Father, when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the perfect holy trinity in some way was disrupted. The relationship that the Son had enjoyed with the Father from before the foundation of the earth was disrupted as the forsakenness that we deserved was poured out on the only Son of God. God did not spare Jesus that. He did not spare Jesus that. He did give him up for us all. That is always, friends, the Lord's past faithfulness to us if we are in Christ. That is always the Lord's past grace to us if we are followers of Jesus. We look back upon that, but then hear the logic. Paul moves us forward in light of that. We look back on that, but so we do that so we can look forward. He says, how will he, God the Father, not also with him graciously give us all things. In other words, God the Father has given you the greatest gift that he could give. He's done it in the past. It's sure, it's certain, it's finished, it's done. Now look forward. Anything else that you might possibly need God to give you, it's less than that, it's smaller than that. Of course he's gonna give it to you also how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so when you're empty like Naomi, when you feel broken and in despair like Ruth, you can look back upon the past faithfulness of God and think and believe that of course God will in the future give us what we need. I think that's what Naomi has experienced here. She has hope Because God's kindness to her. She's remembered it. She's reflecting on it. And she's now acting like God will continue to work in her life in the future. That's why she develops a plan. Now let's talk about her plan for a minute. Pick it up with me again in verse 2. She says, talking about Boaz, she says, See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore... And anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man, until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. No, I just want to go on record here and say, this sounds like an absolutely terrible plan. And the fact that it's in the Bible doesn't mean we're not allowed to say that, right? Like, some of us were like, oh no, you can't talk about the plan in a bad way because it's in the Bible. No, no, no. Like, the fact that this is a plan recorded for us in Scripture doesn't mean that it's a good plan. It doesn't mean that this is the kind of plan that we should develop for ourselves and follow ourselves. And I especially want to say that to you if you're you know, a single young woman in the room this morning, right, this is not a biblically prescribed way to find the perfect husband, right? In fact, in fact, don't do this. In fact, I'll add even one more in fact to that. Like, if anybody ever says to you advice or a suggestion that ends with the statement, and he will tell you what to do, I just want you to run as fast as you possibly can from that advice, Unless the he is the Lord Jesus himself, don't ever put yourself in a man's hands in the way that Naomi encourages Ruth to put herself in Boaz's hands here. This is terrible advice. At least now it's terrible advice. And actually, if we think about it, it was probably terrible advice then also. Just think through with me everything that Naomi tells Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to do. She tells her to wash, She tells her to anoint herself, probably with perfume. She needs to get the barley smell out of her hair or something like that. She tells Ruth to put on her cloak. Now, that doesn't mean that Ruth has been wandering around naked this entire story. It simply means, I think, that Naomi is encouraging Ruth to remove the garments of mourning, the funeral garments she's been wearing since her husband died, and instead to put on her regular cloak, which would then be a signal to everyone that Ruth was done mourning, and she was now relationally and even sexually available. Naomi continues. She tells Ruth to go down to the threshing floor. If you need to know what a threshing floor is, ask somebody other than me, because that's not the kind of thing that I like to keep track of. She says to Ruth, this is where it gets really dicey. She tells her to hide in the shadows... Until Boaz is done partying, right? Boaz and his workers, they're on the threshing floor. When their work is done for the day, they enjoy a nice meal, they enjoy some drink with that meal. They live it up a little bit. Once that's over, Naomi is saying to Ruth, watch where Boaz happens to lie down and then go over to wherever he's laid down and lay down next to him. And then she tells him to uh, tells her to uncover his foot. And then she says, see what happens. He will tell you what to do. Now, it is a crazy plan for sure. It's also one that is just like really wrapped in a ton of suggestive ambiguity. And I think that's by design on the part of the narrator here. What do I mean when I say that it's suggestive ambiguity? Well, It's suggestive. Do you notice how many times that verb to lie down appeared in the passage? Like again and again and again, we're talking about people lying down. What do you think we're supposed to conclude about people who are lying down near one another? But then also notice the fact that it's remarkably unclear what this lying down is supposed to look like. I mean, is Ruth supposed to lie down perpendicular to Boaz, parallel to Boaz, overlapping with Boaz? We don't really know, right? It's, It's very deliberately unclear. To add to that lack of clarity... There's a Hebrew word that's used here in this passage to describe Boaz's foot. And often that Hebrew word for foot, it means a foot. But there are other times when it's used when it means basically anything below Boaz's hip that might be on or near his leg. And so whatever it is that Ruth is intended to uncover here, like it's suggestively unclear. Now I want to say that I don't think that Naomi hopes for a sexual encounter to occur between Ruth and Boaz as a result of her advice, and we'll see why I think that in just a few verses. But I point all of that ambiguity out because I just want us to think about the number of ways that this could have gone wrong. I mean, that's why it's such terrible advice, right? Because it could go wrong so many different ways. Ruth could go to the threshing floor, and before she gets to where Boaz is lying down, somebody else could grab her. Ruth could go to the threshing floor and not see very clearly where it is that Boaz lay down, and so she could go lie down in the wrong place. Ruth could go to the threshing floor and find the right bed, lay down at Boaz's feet, only to have Boaz completely misunderstand her intentions and send her away in some kind of moral indignation because he just thinks that Ruth is trying to proposition him. Or Boaz could think that Ruth is trying to proposition him, and having had a lot to drink and a lot to eat and... He could just give in to temptation right then and there. So there, there there's so many ways that this could have gone wrong. Yet what we see is that God is faithful. And he's committed to revealing his faithfulness to his people. And so he works even in Naomi's crazy scheme here. Let's see how he works. Verse six. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. I just want to point out, every English translation that I read this week puts an exclamation point at the end of verse 8. I just think that's hilarious. It's like, woman! Woman! what are you doing here? It's exactly the same way my friends and I would react if any girl, any time, talked to us when we were in junior high. It's like, girl, what are you doing here? Exclamation point. Like, there's just this this mystery there, right? It's like, what is this woman doing here? We'll see. Verse 9. Boaz said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are Redeemer, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, that right there is actually the critical statement in this chapter. It's the statement that is the key to understanding what exactly is happening on the threshing floor, why Naomi sent Ruth there in the first place, and what Ruth hopes to accomplish by going. It's also the statement that's key in helping us understand how this story reveals the covenant faithfulness of God. So let's talk about each of those things with the time that we have left. What's going on here at the threshing floor? Well, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. That's a Bible translation. Um, And in my version, when Ruth speaks to Boaz, she says, spread your wings over your servant. We just read that. You might be holding an NIV in your hand or any, other, any, any of a number of other good English translations. And many other English translations here, instead of saying, spread your wings over your servant, they have Ruth saying, spread your garment over your servant. As if Ruth is asking Boaz to share his cloak with her or robe with her. So spread your wings, spread your garment. Which is right. Well, the answer is Both. <laughs> let me explain what I mean by that. Um, Spread your garment over your servant. In the Old Testament, spreading your garment over someone was a metaphor for marriage. I think what Naomi intends and what Ruth intends here is to propose to Boaz, essentially. They're, They're asking Boaz to marry Ruth. And they're asking him to do that based on this language of spread your garment over me. Often in the Old Testament when a husband brings a wife into covenant with him, he brings her into that covenant by spreading his garment over her. And in fact, there's even a point in Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 8 where that's used as a metaphor of the Lord's covenant faithfulness to his people. Israel is pictured as this naked and vulnerable young woman and the Lord in his covenant love makes a vow to her and wraps his garment around her to cover her, to marry her essentially. As, a, as an expression of his covenant faithfulness to her. And so based on that, I think that what Ruth wants here, and what Naomi wants here, is for Boaz to commit to marrying Ruth. And so she says to him, spread your garment over me, using a Hebrew word that can mean garment or cloak. But that Hebrew word also has a different meaning, and that's why the ESV's not wrong to translate this Spread your wings over me. And the reason that's significant is because it points us to the bigger covenantal reality that's here. Not in terms of Ruth's relationship with Boaz, but in terms of Ruth's relationship with God. See, the ESV uses that word wings because they want to point out to us that Boaz had used the very same word when he was speaking to Ruth in the passage we looked at last week in chapter 2. If you look back at Ruth 2 verse 12, Boaz is celebrating God's work in Ruth's life. And he says, you have come under the wings. You have taken refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. And he uses even the covenant name of God. He calls him Yahweh there. He says, you've come under the wings of Yahweh by returning back to Bethlehem with your mother-in-law, Naomi. And so when we hear Ruth say to Boaz, put your garment over me, she says, please marry me, essentially. But she uses a word that can also mean what Boaz said in the previous chapter because she wants Boaz to understand that she's not really in this for Boaz. She's not really here for a relationship with Boaz. She's here because she wants to cement and to solidify her relationship with the Lord. How is she doing that? How does Boaz help her to do that? Well, think about it. Ruth is a Moabite. She's not from the land of Israel. She's not among the people of Judah. Here she is, she's a stranger in this land, an alien in the land, and she has no roots here. But if she marries Boaz, she has roots. That means a commitment to the people of God and the place of God and the God of Israel himself. Boaz, if he were to spread his wings over Ruth, would mean that then she could enjoy being under the wings of Yahweh, of God, until death parts her from Boaz. And so what she's really showing us is what it's like to to value not just the gifts that God gives, but to value God himself. What Ruth wants here is not just a relationship with this man, Boaz, and the protection and the security and everything else that that would bring her. What she longs for is a relationship with the covenant God. She wants to be brought into a relationship with God who is covenantally faithful. And well, the question for us then becomes, what does that show us or tell us about walking with God in his covenant faithfulness? And I think it just is an illustration, a rare illustration of someone in the word who understands that the gifts of God are never as precious or valuable or glorious as God himself is. That's what Ruth understands. She understands that while being in relationship with Boaz is good, being in relationship with God is better. And even in the way she communicates to Boaz, she's communicating that. She's like, Boaz, I want you, yes. But I want you because through you, I get Yahweh. She recognizes that however good and great God's acts for us are, they're never as good and great as God is. She's recognizing that God, the giver of all gifts, is greater than the gifts that he gives us. And that's a remarkable thing because, as I said, we just don't really see very many expressions of that in scripture or even in our own lives. I'm going to just ask you to think about your own life for a few moments. Like we are as people, naturally spring-loaded to value the gifts that God gives us more than we value God himself. We are as people just naturally programmed and wired to enjoy what God does for us more than we enjoy God's person and his character. We're naturally programmed to treasure and value more what God gives us than we value and treasure God himself. I don't think it was that way in Genesis 1 and 2. Before sin entered the world, I don't think Adam and Eve struggled to rightly treasure God himself more than the gifts of God. And so I think in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, they could receive gifts from God, and they would see in that gift God himself, and they would appreciate the gift, but they would treasure God more. But ever since Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, I think we've been all twisted on this. We're all broken on this, so that when we receive something that is good, from God. We want to hold on to that thing and we actually care about that thing more than we care about God himself. I mean just imagine what that would be like if we did that with the people in our lives. So picture my wife Kristen Sharp giving me a gift of some kind. Right, like She very carefully picks it out. She pays for it. She wraps it. She, she gives it to me. She's put a lot of thought and care and love into the gift and I open the gift and, and it's not wrong for me to really enjoy the gift, is it? In fact, it would be wrong if I didn't enjoy the gift. If I was just like, eh, gift, you know, and threw it away. Like, she would be offended by that, rightly. No, so it's important that I enjoy the gift and that I, I assume that there is value in the gift and I ascribe value to it. Like, that's, that's good that I, that I treasure the gift. But there's a tipping point at which I can easily value the gift more than I value her. And so imagine somebody, you know, like, breaks into my house that very same night that I've received this new gift and uh, puts me at gunpoint and essentially forces me to choose between the gift my wife has given me and my wife herself. Well, of course I'm gonna choose my wife herself every single time, right? I'm gonna throw the gift at him and cling to my wife because my wife is more precious to me than the gift itself is. But so often we make the exact opposite choice in our walk with the Lord. So often we cling to what God does for us and gives us, and we actually have very little care for the Lord himself. Like we treasure what God does more than we treasure God himself. But Ruth shows us an example of the opposite of that. She knew that the covenant faithfulness of God was much greater than the covenant faithfulness of Boaz She knew that God was better than anything, including Boaz, that God might give her. So she knew that clinging to the Lord was enough. Do you know that today? Do you know that everything you have is a gift of God? It is. Every single thing that is in your possession has come to you from God himself. Every ounce of health, every ounce of wealth, every relationship, every success you've ever enjoyed, All of these things, they are God's good gifts to you. At the same time, everything that you don't have, that's also a gift from God, right? Because God knows better than you do what you really need. He knows better than I do what I really need. And so there are all sorts of things that I'd really love to have and God hasn't given them to me because he knows that those things would actually jack me up in a pretty serious way, right? He knows that it would be kinder to me and better for me if he withheld those things rather than giving those things. But the point is, Of all the things God gives us, he is more precious. He is more glorious. He is more beautiful than all of them. And I just ask you this morning, do you you really know that? Deep in your soul, do you know that God is more precious than anything that he might give to you? Do you know that he is more precious than any kingdom that he might give you? Any treasure he might give you? Any pleasure he might give you? Like you can have all of the kingdoms and all of the treasure and all of the pleasures of earth, but if you don't have him, then you're poor, friends. And at the same time, I hope that you know that if you have nothing but him, then you still have everything you truly need. And that's true because the covenant faithfulness of God is stunning, and it is all that we need. Scripture tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us. Scripture tells us that he will supply every need that we we might have according to the glorious riches that are his in Christ Jesus. Scripture tells us that everything that happens, he will work out into conformity with his purpose and his plan, that he will work all things for our good and for his glory. Scripture tells us that even when life is difficult, even when we suffer for a little while, he will still in his grace strengthen us and restore us And confirm us and establish us and scripture tells us that he will never ever depart from us and scripture tells us then that there will be a day when he comes in his fullness and in his glory when he dwells with us and in dwelling with us he wipes every tear from our eyes and he puts death to death so that there is not mourning or crying or pain anymore to the covenant faithfulness of God, it is truly all that we need. And we leave Ruth's story this morning at an obvious cliffhanger. Right? The question that is still lingering over us is, how is Boaz going to respond to this idea that Ruth has brought to him, to this proposition that Ruth has made? But More important for us to consider this morning than that is the question of how I respond and how you respond to the covenant faithfulness of God. See, the thing about God's covenant faithfulness is that it isn't actually for everyone. God's covenant faithfulness isn't for all people. God does love all people, but he does not love all people as a husband who forgives his adulterous wife again and again and again. No, his covenant love It's bound by the blood of Jesus. And that love binds him only to those who have recognized the massive gap between his holiness and their sinfulness. That covenant love binds him only to those who have recognized that he alone is Lord and who have bowed before him in humble submission. That covenant love binds him only to those who have turned from their sin and turned towards him through the gospel, who have trusted in the saving work and promises of Jesus and the gospel. And so the question I have for you this morning is, simply, is that you? Have you turned from sin and trusted in the covenant love of Jesus? Is your name graven on his hands and written on his heart? Like, have you come to know and embrace the love of God who will never, ever leave you or forsake you? And if you haven't recognized those things, if you haven't come to know that love this morning, I simply ask you, what could possibly be holding you back? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see just how gloriously faithful you are We ask that you would help us to see and sense and know your beauty. And not not just know your beauty the way that we understand something to be true. We pray that you would help us to feel your beauty this morning. Lord. We pray that we would have a clear apprehension of your wonderful covenant faithfulness to us through Jesus. And that we would be stirred by that to live for you and to worship you. And I pray, Lord, that of each of us here, that none would leave here having failed to do business with you today. I pray that none would leave here having failed to embrace you as you reach out in your warm and loving embrace to welcome your children to you. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.